There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. You're entitled to believe and trust advice of counsel. You had one of the leading constitutional scholars in the United States, John Eastman, say to President Trump, this is a protocol that you can follow. It's legal. That eliminates criminal intent. Trump's emerging defense, the lawyer said I could do it, and what it tells us about the emerging crisis of lawyering in America. Plus, you just knew it was going to get worse. New reporting out today on even more lavish gifts bestowed upon Clarence Thomas by his wealthy right-wing benefactors. But we begin tonight with a pop quiz. Where did President Abraham Lincoln go to law school? The anchor may surprise you. I mean, the answer may surprise you. And the answer is nowhere. That is correct. He was a self-taught lawyer. And yet his judgment that seceding from the union was unconstitutional shaped the country we live in today more than almost any other action by a U.S. president. Lincoln also had a big influence on the practice of law, writing notes for a law lecture in around 1850 that laid out guidelines for being a good lawyer, such as being, among other things, diligent, moral, a good businessman, and above all, honest. Above all, honest. Qualities the Illinois State Bar Association says are what defines the term Lincoln lawyer. The more you know. Of course, if you want to be a lawyer today, it generally requires going to law school. Only a handful of states allow you to do so without a law degree. But just because someone earns a degree doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good lawyer. I mean, Ron DeSantis is a Harvard Law School trained lawyer. Does he seem super sharp to you? And there are some frankly stunning examples in today's headlines that show we in the U.S. are facing a crisis of lawyering. Case in point. The alleged co-conspirators in Donald Trump's latest indictment over his efforts to try and overturn the 2020 election. All of those we've identified are lawyers. All of them. Even the sixth co-conspirator, who is only referred to as a political consultant in the indictment, is identified by The New York Times as likely being Trump advisor Boris Epstein, who is also a lawyer. But it is Kenneth Cheeseborough, a.k.a. co-conspirator number five, who really epitomizes the crisis that we are facing today. Cheeseborough was a researcher for one of the greatest legal minds of the modern era, Harvard Law School's Lawrence Tribe. He worked for him back in 2000 when Tribe was an attorney for Al Gore, arguing in the infamous Bush v. Gore debacle. Now, more than 20 years later, we've learned how Cheeseboro misappropriated and twisted and dishonestly misrepresented that very research to create a legal pretext for Trump to subvert democracy, what we know as the fake elector scheme. The New York Times obtained a copy of a previously unknown memo that he wrote that was the genesis of the scheme. NBC News has not been able to independently verify the memo, but in it, Cheeseboro claimed it was a controversial strategy that would likely get rejected if it were brought before the Supreme Court. 
He added that while it could ultimately get thrown out, airing it out publicly would, quote, buy the Trump campaign more time to challenge the election. As it relates to Trump's latest indictment, there were lawyers on both sides of the argument about whether or not you can set aside real electors for ones chosen by the losing candidate. I mean, it sounds absurd, right? We know that there were lawyers from the Trump White House, DOJ, and the various states saying, you can't do that. But then there were a slew of lawyers who were all claiming the exact opposite, many of whom are now facing or having already faced disbarment. And we all know who Trump decided to listen to. Lawyers also played a conspicuous role in the other federal case Trump is facing, the one involving classified documents. In that case, Trump tried to corrupt his own lawyers. It was his lawyers who were told by federal authorities to search for the classified documents so they could be returned to federal custody. But Trump tried to fool his lawyers by having low-level Mar-a-Lago staffers move the boxes around so the lawyers couldn't do the job they were tasked to do, even though the lawyers had to sign an attestation certifying that all the documents had been returned, signatures that could put them at risk of prosecution if the information turned out to be false. And even after they found some classified documents, one of the lawyers claims Trump wanted him to pluck out any really incriminating ones before handing them over to the FBI. Trump's legal team, as well as those staffers who are now his co-defendants, Walt Nauta and Carlos de Oliveira, were back in a Florida courtroom today to be arraigned on the additional charges from the superseding indictment. Again, de Oliveira came without local counsel. So for the second time, his arraignment was delayed. It's been delayed another week. These two cases and the role that lawyers played in them leave us with an overriding question of whether we can trust lawyers to interpret the law as it's written, or whether they can simply get away with their own interpretation that takes them outside of the law. Because if we can't trust the lawyers, then we have a system that can't function. Their interpretation of the law matters. And this week, the American Bar Association launched a task force led by former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson and renowned conservative federal judge Michael Ludig, who you might remember from the January 6th hearings, whose focus will be to bolster public trust in our elections and remind Americans that their vote matters. According to Ludig, the task force also will address the profound obligations of lawyers under the Constitution and the rule of law. And all of this also matters because Trump has come up with a two-part strategy to try to stay out of prison. There is his legal strategy, where his emerging defense is to throw his lawyers under the bus and blame them, saying, hey, they told me I could do it. While politically, his strategy has been to attack all the prosecutors and judges involved in the cases. Jack Smith, uh, he's like a he's like a deranged individual. And I think we're doing very well with that guy. But he is uh, he's a sick puppy. They say there's a young woman, uh, a young racist in Atlanta, say racist. And they say, I guess they say that she was after a certain gang. And she ended up having an affair with the head of the gang or a gang member. And this is a person that wants to indict me. She's got a lot of problems, but she wants to indict me to try and run for some other office. Joining me now is Katie Fang, attorney and host of The Katie Fang Show, right here on MSNBC. And Charles Coleman Jr., former Brooklyn prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the Charles Coleman podcast. Thank you both for being here. Katie, you were in court today. And one of the things about lawyers is that you actually need a local one <laughs> in order to be arraigned in the state of Florida. Does Mr. De Oliveira have a local lawyer yet? 
as we sit here and have this conversation? The answer is no. So, uh, you know, De Oliveira took a page out of the Walt Nauda playbook today. Walt Nauda, as we know, had his arraignment reset on two occasions for him to secure local counsel. There was a guy who showed up today. He's a criminal defense lawyer out of West Palm Beach. He represented to the court that they were this close to getting it done and that probably tomorrow he'd be able to file a notice of appearance. However, despite the magistrate judge from a week and some change ago saying, show up and have local counsel today for your arraignment, Mr. De Oliveira, no local counsel was there. And to your point, you know, Joy, when I practiced law for more than 20 something years in the courtrooms that I was in, and, and I'll specifically focus on Miami-Dade County, there was a saying on the wall behind where the judge sat. And it said, we who labor here only seek the truth. It didn't say we who labor here only seek Donald Trump's truth. It didn't say we who labor here only seek the truth when it's convenient and it fits the narrative that I want. It is a black and white application of the black letter of the wall. That's what that's the reason why we call it that. Right. As we know today, what I saw happen with Todd Blanche and with Chris Kyes that disgusted me is they kept on referring to their client as President Trump. He's not the president. And they do it again and again in the filings. It That is the kind of stuff that makes our profession as lawyers look bad. That yeah. is the disingenuous move that you make as a lawyer. That is a problem with our profession. He's not the president. He's the former president. And even then today, the magistrate judge didn't take the bait, right? She said, yeah. Mr. Trump. And so it's just one small example. And people may think it's superficial, Joy, but it's an example of how dishonest the profession can be when you're just trying to service a client. Right. And Charles, I mean, the, the, the thing about, you know, lawyers have had various reputations, right, in the country. I mean, most of our politicians, I don't think people realize, are lawyers. Like, most elected officials are actually lawyers. They were prosecutors first, uh, like you both were. Um, and, you know, there's the ambulance chaser sort of theme of lawyers. But then there's, like, when you're in trouble, who are you going to call, right? Not Ghostbusters, a lawyer, right? And the, the fact that we need them. But in this case, the fact that you have lawyers all around both of these cases. In the Mar-a-Lago case, you have lawyers who refuse to commit felonies for Donald Trump, right? They were refusing to do his dirty work for them. And so their potential witnesses against their former client. It's just a weird thing. But the fact that Donald Trump tried to pull lawyers into his scheme and the fact that in the other case in D.C., they made up the scheme, it, it does feel like a lawyer crisis. Well, Joy, what we can surmise from what we're seeing here is that the law is as powerful and prolific a weapon as any other that can be wielded, but it should be reserved for those who appreciate the severity of its consequences. And what I mean by that in plain speak is this isn't for everybody. This is not something that everybody should be doing because everyone cannot appreciate that we are all agents of democracy and democratic processes. And what I mean by that, as a lawyer, you are an extension of the court. You are an extension of those institutions which form the bedrock of American democracy. And if you are not willing to take that responsibility and that alliance as seriously as it sounds, then you should not be a part of this profession. It is very clear and very telling that Donald Trump understood the power of the law, which is why he continued to surround himself over and over and over again with lawyers who were willing to approach that line, in some cases cross it, in some cases bend it. But at the end of the day, what we are talking about 
are a number of people who are, exist in a relatively self-regulated space, which is also important to understand about the bar, who were willing to step outside of that space from an ethical standpoint in a way that gives, as Katie already alluded to, all of us a bad name. Yeah, I mean, and the thing about Donald Trump is that he's both willing to pretend like the sort of shammy lawyers that are telling him things, people like Rudy Giuliani are like brilliant and geniuses and Eastman are geniuses. But at the same time, he's literally preparing to throw his own lawyers under the bus, Katie. That is one of his strategies is to say it is their fault. And then he had all these lawyers who were flunkies. Let's talk about Bill Barr was a complete flunky, twisted the Justice Department to turn it into Donald Trump's law firm. But he is now even willing to say, no, no, that guy, because he gave me actually sound legal advice in this one case about the election, is now the enemy. And here's how he's treating him. You know, what's really terrifying about that analysis is that, listen, there's good apples, bad apples, and the ones that everybody kind of, you know, would ignore. In this instance, putting aside the Alina Habas of the world, putting aside some of the lawyers that he picks out of, you know, parking garages kind of stuff, he actually has exceptionally trained attorneys that end up being a part of his arsenal that he deploys to be able to get what he wants. These are not casual practicers of the law. These are people, for example, like Bill Barr, like Kenneth Cheesebro, like John Eastman, for example. These are not people that just, you know, fell into the practice of law. <laughs> they were actual scholars and or they were actual practitioners of a profession within which, you know, Charles, to Charles's point, were regulated by bars, were regulated by licenses. You know, we have to make sure that we comply. What's problematic is these lawyers like Cheesebro and Eastman, they found also willing patsies like Jeffrey Clark. Remember, if I find an oil spill, I'll let you know, Jeffrey, right? That kind of idea. They, they run the gamut of experience, but they also do not run the gamut, though, of morality. They do not have a variation on a theme of morality. They only subscribe to one particular completely debased version of it. So to throw away willingly something that is not cheap or easy to get. Law degrees are not cheap to get or easy to get. And getting your law license is not that easy to get or, or inexpensive to get. But they are just casually throwing it away for a man that would literally throw them under the bus is shocking to me because what is it worth? Now they're all being yeah. disbarred. Now they can't practice law. And for what? For a guy to pretend like you're the next Kafefi lawyer? <laughs> and so that is a problem. I think that I, I don't understand the siren song of Donald Trump that it works for these lawyers to say, to hell with it, I'm willing to jeopardize all of it for you. Well, he's like a mob lawyer. I mean, you think about the fact that yesterday a man was shot and killed after posting numerous threats against any of the prosecutors who were involved in prosecuting Donald Trump. He was shot and killed in Utah, uh, where the current president was visiting Charles. You've had Fonnie Willis talk about the fact that she's getting constant threats. Um, there's constant threats now against all these prosecutors to say nothing of, you know this very well, you're a prosecutor, you need witnesses to come forward. The witnesses in this case don't have security, don't have Secret Service like Mike Pence does. You're now going to have to have witnesses. And Donald Trump is on his social media saying, if you come after me, I come after you. There are a lot of witnesses who are going to say, it's not worth it to me. This guy is threatening my life. Look at what, what happened to Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. They got death threats, lynching threats, people picketing outside their homes. Talk about that, because Donald Trump, feel, it feels like he's turning this case into an opportunity to hurt people for him, to silence them. 
Well, Joy, what Donald Trump has done is he's figured out a way in some cases that he believes he's going to be able to short circuit the legal system. And if he can't short circuit it by delaying it for as long as he can, he's going to now try to poison and toxify the environment around all of these cases in such a way where no one wants to participate. You've already talked about the difficulty of witnesses. And as a former prosecutor, both Katie and I can tell you that there are so many different times where you may have a defendant dead to rights, but because of the pressure that is being put on a witness or their exposure potentially of having to go into a particular environment that they know is not safe for themselves, they will not cooperate making it infinitely more difficult for you to prosecute. But let's also talk about the fact that right now, if you consider what Donald Trump is doing in his public smear campaign, he's also poisoning an entire jury pool. He's doing that as well by trying to advance a narrative on his own before the first pieces of discovery have even been turned over in such a way that even as you may get 12 people who sit and promise to be fair and impartial, they have already been inundated by so much from Donald Trump's own platform that they themselves may have a difficult time going into that case and making a fair decision on either party's behalf. Yeah, and I think that, you know, for people who, you know, call themselves fans of Donald Trump, he's not like you. You're more like Walt Nada. You're more like De Oliveira. Regular people aren't like him. They're like the people that he's using. They're not going to have the protection. And if they turn on him, he is like a mob boss. You're like the witnesses in this case. You're not like Trump. He has a, like a, a gold toilet in his, in my, in, uh, his New York house. This is crazy. Uh, Katie Fang and Charles Coleman Jr., thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, ProPublica delivers yet another bombshell on the luxurious lifestyle of a certain Supreme Court justice. Thanks to the unprecedented generosity of his billionaire buddies. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Justice Clarence Thomas, after his bruising confirmation hearing in 1991, is said to have told his law clerks that the liberals made my life miserable for 43 years and I'm going to make their lives miserable for 43 years. That vengeance has seemingly fueled his complete disregard for any sense of propriety and ethics. This morning, the nonprofit investigative website ProPublica posted yet another detailed investigation into Thomas and what they uncovered is shocking, but no longer surprising. In his 30-plus years on the court, Thomas has amassed new billionaire buddies like Harlan Crow, whose relationship with Thomas was the subject of previous reporting. Now we're learning about others, like Wayne Heisinger, who started Blockbuster Video and owned the Miami Dolphins, David Sokol, a wealthy financier who introduced Thomas to the Horatio Alger Society, and Tony Novelli, an oil baron. 
They all reportedly lavished their Supreme Court buddy with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gifts, private jet lifts and vacations. According to ProPublica, which cited flight data, security detail records, tax court filings, interviews with more than 100 eyewitnesses and a host of other sources of information. Thomas received at least 38 destination vacations, including a previously unreported voyage on a yacht around the Bahamas, 26 private jet flights, plus an additional eight by helicopter, a dozen VIP passes to professional and college sporting events, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, he was typically perched in the skybox for those. Two stays at luxury resorts in Florida and Jamaica, and one standing invitation to an uber-exclusive golf club overlooking the Atlantic coast. None of these gifts or the names of these newly reported boosters appeared in financial disclosures. Well, Justice Thomas does not appear to have violated any laws by failing to report his stays at his friends' homes. Experts say it sure looks like he may have violated the law by failing to disclose the flights, the cruises, the VIP sports tickets, and other perks he got only after he was seated on the Supreme Court. NBC News reached out to Thomas for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. It is important to note that ProPublica was unable to identify if these billionaire benefactors had any legal cases before the Supreme Court during their documented relationships with Thomas. David Sokol told ProPublica, we have never once discussed any pending court matter. Novelli did not respond, and Heisinger died in 2018. When ProPublica reported in April that Thomas was receiving luxurious trips and financial assistance from Harlan Crow, Just- Justice Thomas said he was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. Thomas has also complained in the past that serving on the highest court in the land wasn't worth it for the pay, but rather for the principal. I guess the access, power, and prestige make it even better, since it helped him meet his cadre of billionaire friends, who all seemingly love to lavish him with really expensive gifts while he sits on a court that continues to deliver major victories that just so happen to appeal to their ideological beliefs. Just ask yourself, dear viewer, if Clarence Thomas didn't rule the way he did, do you really think that he would be invited on these trips to the clubs, to the yachts? Joining me now is Don Fox, former acting director and general counsel of the U.S. Office of Government Ethics. He was quoted in the ProPublica piece. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Mr. Fox. But, and that is my challenge with the Thomas defense and those who defend him. Number one, and I think you might have said this in the piece, were these people his friends before 1992 when he got on the court? No. Number two, if he didn't rule the way he did, would they still take him on the yacht and take him on the chopper? I would argue No. And so to me, the bribe isn't, hey, Clarence, can you please rule this way on this case? The bribe is you doing this is how I get you the gift. You doing this is how you get the lifestyle and you not doing it would probably take the lifestyle away. What do you think of my kind of syllogism there? Well, I think, Joy, that the defense that uh, there was no case, there were no cases before Justice Thomas in which these gentlemen were, were parties or the fact that there wasn't a bribe involved is an awfully low bar in terms of public service. I mean, the whole point of public financial disclosure in the first place is public confidence in in senior officials, whether they're career officials, as I was uh, for a long time in the government or people who enjoy lifetime tenure like like Justice Thomas. Uh, if you had done the right thing, first of all, by declining all this lavish entertainment and these trips from his newly found friends, or at a minimum, if he had at least disclosed it, uh, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. And the thing is, like, even the attempts to sort of 
mitigate the kind of appearance that he's living high on the hog, that famous RV trip that he took uh, where they did a documentary to try to make him look good. It turned out even that his $287,000 RV, luxury RV, came as a result of a real sneaky sounding loan from another rich friend. And so even the, the appearance to make him look like an everyman comes across as shady. And so, uh, you know, at this point, I think what a lot of people wonder is why isn't there anything that can be done in terms of what seems to be ethical violations? Well, I think in terms of that question, why can't something be done? And I think that's because the court itself has failed to adopt uh, any of the standards that, in fact, are imposed on the lower courts. Uh, And that's a reluctance that I think many of us who have been in the ethics profession simply don't understand. Um, so I think that's that's kind of the first answer. Uh, is there possible? I'm sorry. Go, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, is there any possible recourse? I think the only possible recourse, and I don't really see it happening in this case, um, would be if there were some possible prosecution for knowingly filing a false public financial disclosure statement. Those Those kinds of prosecutions have occurred for much lower level officials. Uh, But we're really in an uncharted territory here when we're talking about an associate justice of the Supreme Court. I can't imagine this Justice Department with all of the Trump stuff on its hands saying they they want to go into a Clarence Thomas file. I just can't imagine it happening. Um, This was the uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee um, on these newest revelations. This is Dick Durbin, Senator Dick Durbin, Justice Thomas and Alito. Have made it clear that they are oblivious to the embarrassment they have visited on the highest court in the land. Now it's up to Chief Justice Roberts and other justices to act on ethics reform to save their own reputations and the integrity of the court. And if the court will not act, then Congress must continue to do so. Uh, Justice Elena Kagan has said, no, 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 Congress can regulate us. They confirm us and, you know, they fund us and they can. Um, short of regulation, it seems to me that, like, you're not going to embarrass them into retiring because if they retire, they don't get the gifts anymore. So there's, the incentive is to dig your dig in and keep doing it because you get to keep going on the trips. Well, I think in that respect, you know, you could be right. But Justice Kagan is also certainly right that Congress has the constitutional authority uh, to pass laws that uh, limit the ethic, the restrict the ethical conduct of of the justices. I mean, indeed, the very law that we're talking about that requires public financial disclosure was enacted in 1978 by the Congress. So uh, it's also public financial disclosure should not be new to Justice Thomas. He had to file these forms when he was chair of the EEOC, which he was for Mm. many years. Yeah. Uh, He just pretends he doesn't know because he likes the trips. I think that's very clear. Uh, Don Fox, thank you so much for being here. Um, And thank you so much. And up next, to ban or not to ban. Now it is Shakespeare feeling the wrath of snowflake conservatives in Florida. Because did you hear that people were having sex and doing violence in his day as well? Zounds! On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Right next to Black history and the existence of gay people, the works of William Shakespeare are now on the very long list of what is not allowed to be taught in Florida schools. Yep, you heard that right. According to Hillsborough County Public Schools' new curriculum, students will only be reading excerpts from Shakespeare's plays for class rather than the full texts, citing sexual content in plays like Romeo and Juliet that they claim do not align with Florida's don't say gay law. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou? Sorry, kids, that's all I can say. And if you're asking yourself, what can they actually teach in Florida schools other than the job benefits of slavery? Well, look no further than a little place called Prager University. Not a real university, mind you, but a conservative advocacy group founded by right-wing radio talk show host Dennis Prager. But last week, Florida became the fir- last week, Florida became the first state to allow educational material from PragerU to be taught in classrooms. The state's Department of Education says the Prager material targeting young children aligns to Florida's revised civics and government standards. And in case you weren't aware, this content that aligns with their standards is essentially just conservative talking points formulated into 10-minute cartoon videos. Namely, a series of short videos about a cartoon brother and sister duo named Leo and Layla who time travel to different periods in history and meet historical figures. Sounds harmless, right? Well, no, not exactly. Just take a look at the video of when they meet Christopher Columbus. Yeah, but what about slavery? You didn't deny that. Deny? No. Slavery is as old as time and has taken place in every corner of the world, even amongst the people I just left. Being taken as a slave is better than being killed, no? I don't see the problem. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? There should never be a scenario where you start a sentence with being taken as a slave is better than. But nonetheless, the video also justifies Columbus taking the land of indigenous people because they were, quote unquote, violent, while also glossing over all the genocide and rape because Columbus brought Christianity to the new world. So he must be a good guy, right? There's another episode where, amid the protest movement following the murder of George Floyd in 2020, the cartoon duo travels back to slavery era to meet Frederick Douglass, who says the following about the American system. There was no real movement anywhere in the world to abolish slavery before the American founding. Slavery was part of life all over the world. It was America that began the conversation to end it. Our system is wonderful. And the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. We just need to convince enough Americans to be true to it. And people like Garrison don't just want slavery abolished, but the whole American system? You are correct. His approach is called radical. That means a complete fundamental change of everything. 
Uh, that would be William Lord Garrison, uh, actual abolitionist hero. Okay, uh, yeah, no. What real Frederick Douglass actually said about America in his famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, is this. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. And for it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. But that speech, with Douglas's actual words, probably would be banned in Florida, too. Because why teach accurate history when you can just teach the watered-down conservative version of it? And what's even more ironic is, as conservatives argue that teaching about gay people and the atrocities of slavery is indoctrination, here is how Prager himself described his eponymous fake university's content at a Moms for Liberty conference last month. I really wanted to hear, what evidence do you have that I am despicable? So it was fascinating. As I, I spent at least 10 minutes there until I just had to come in here. And all I heard was, well, because you indoctrinate kids. And I, which is true. We bring doctrines to children. I, I, that's a very fair statement. I said, but what... In, what is the bad of our indoctrination? Yeah, okay, so, so what I'm getting is indoctrination is fine as long as they're the ones doing it? Is that what's going on here? Well, this is a question that I would love to ask the Florida Education Commissioner, Manny Diaz, but apparently he's too busy to take questions, even from his own constituents, on what is, in fact, the first day of the fall school year in much of Florida. Last night, the commissioner dropped out of a town hall addressing these very issues, which is happening right now in one of Florida's largest majority black cities. My conversation with State Senator Chevron Jones, who organized that event, which I did just a short time ago, is next. Okay, I want to show you what's happening right now at Antioch Missionary Baptist Church in Miami Gardens, Florida, where state lawmakers, educators, and families are gathered for a town hall on the state's new standards for teaching black history. One person who's not in attendance is Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz, who at the last minute declined an invitation from State Senator Chevron Jones, one of the organizers of the event. Just last hour, I talked with Senator Jones about this notable absence. Senator, thank you for joining me. Uh, and let me just start by asking you to take a look at the flyer um, that I actually got from you, from your office. Here it is, and it says August 10, 7 p.m. That is today. Uh, and at that point, Manny Diaz was going to be there. What happened, and when did you find out that he was no longer going to show up? Yes, uh, absolutely, Joy. Uh, I, I'm almost sure that the governor uh, and the governor's office uh, uh, directed the uh, the commissioner that uh, this is not something that he uh, should be doing or that he that he should do because he uh, he did express that he was uh, getting some he had gotten um, get, got some pushback, but he wanted to definitely do this uh, anyway uh, because yeah, you know, I expressed to him the importance of it. And but uh, earlier in the week, uh, he made it clear that this is something that he probably uh, would not be able uh, to do. He would give me a call, uh, and then then it, the it pull, he pulled out and said that this is something that I can't do anymore. And pulled out. When was that? Uh, that was earlier this week, so uh, Monday or Tuesday. Monday or Tuesday. How many people had RSVP'd for this event, this community event? 
about 1400 people uh RSVP on the um on the website um but that's not including those individuals who are, have RSVP through email and, uh, and other things uh so and I think right now we're still getting RSVP even in the in the event is about to start in the next 30 minutes uh, this is the statement that uh, Nanny Diaz tweeted out. We attempted to reach out to him, but um, got no. They just referred us back to the tweet. There is nothing sudden about my inability to attend Senator Jones's town hall. As I told the senator last week, I'll be visiting schools throughout the state to welcome back students, parents, and teachers for the first day in school. But presumably. First of all, I want you to comment on whether that statement is accurate that he told you uh, last week, because you just said it was not last week. It was this week. But also today is the first day of school. This was an opportunity to talk with parents and teachers. Does this leave you with the sense that this commissioner just really actually isn't interested in hearing from parents and teachers in this particular community? It's very interesting because uh, Miami-Dade County and Obrow schools, uh, are don't, they don't start until next week. Uh, and I do understand that he was uh, up, uh, up north in uh, some of the other schools that have already started. Uh, it was never communicated to me uh, about visiting schools. The only thing uh, the commissioner and I spoke about, because he and I do have a relationship, we've served for 12 years in the legislature together. Uh, he said that he was going to be in town um, during this week, and we uh, we solidified on, on this date. Uh, and then as far as uh, the, the time frame. I think Commissioner Diaz and his office is very clear how we operate in protocol. We reached out uh, and wanted to make sure, hey, are you okay with the flyer? Are you okay with everything that's uh, that house set up? It was fine. Um, but I, 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 I also I want to put out again, that I think the governor made it clear that you're, you're not doing this. And, you know, we're um, looking at a place where, you know, Florida Schools. This is AP psychology, which is one of the things that almost got lost in the don't say gay law. Uh, Commissioner Diaz last Wednesday did confirm that they've changed their mind and are going to allow AP psychology to be to be taught consistent with the state bans. But there are local school um, teachers and commissioners who are concerned and they're saying, yeah, they'd be happy to teach it as long as their teachers won't end up in prison. And so you still have a lot of questions about whether AP psychology can be taught without teachers being jailed. And you've got this fake history of PragerU videos being taught in places like Miami Gardens to black kids lying about American history through the voices of people like a fake Frederick Douglass. Um, is that the kind of thing that you think would have been addressed if Manny Diaz had shown up tonight? Absolutely, Joy. I think that would have been addressed, and I think the other things would have been addressed. Uh, I, a lot of parents came here not just to talk about the African American studies. They came to talk about the AP psychology. They came to talk about what's happening when it comes to their LGBTQ child. Uh, they came to talk about when it comes to reading proficiency in Florida and why we're still number 49 uh, um, in the country when it comes to whether our children can read. Parents wanted to come ask these questions, and I, I will continue to put out there that we as leaders if we are bold enough to put these type of policies out there, you better be bold enough to be able to stand on it. Absolutely. If you're going to ban books, at least be and say that it's parental rights, at least show up and let the parents ask you about the books uh, that Absolutely. you're banning. I, I will note again that we have been attempting to get Commissioner Manny Diaz to come on this show and talk about the education rules in the state of Florida. Uh, thus far, his office has declined, but that invitation remains open. Florida State Senator Chevron Jones Thank you very much. Uh, and still ahead, um, thank you. Very, uh, my friend and colleague, Reverend Al Sharpton, sat down with Vice President Kamala Harris earlier today, and he is sitting down with me next 
to share some exclusive excerpts and insights. Stay right there. This month marks 60 years since 250,000 people marched on Washington to fight for equality and the right to vote. Today, Reverend Al Sharpton spoke to Vice President Kamala Harris about that historic march and the rights that are still under attack today. Here's how the vice president responded when asked what she thinks about when she wakes up in the morning. Our democracy. Rev, I think everything is at stake right now. When a democracy is intact, it strengthens the people, it protects and fights for fundamental freedoms, individual rights. It's a, it's a fight for order against chaos. It strengthens. On the other hand, democracy, incredibly fragile. It will only be as strong as our willingness to fight for it. And right now, there are many forces that are attempting to purposely, I believe, weaken our democracy. You can see that complete interview on Politics Nation Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. And joining me now is the Reverend Al Sharpton. Rev, it is so good to see you. Congratulations on the interview. That answer was so quick. It was so immediate. Like, she didn't even have a second thought. Um, what, what do you make of the way that she's kind of framing the, the, you know, the threats to democracy that we're facing right now? I think that she realizes that she is, and she expresses this when you see the whole interview, that she's a result of people that marched and fought in the 60s, including her own mother, and we talk about that. And this is in her DNA as the first woman and first woman of color to be vice president. And when you look at, you just talked to Senator Kevin Brown, who we had a big march with him when they first started trying to alter Florida. You look at how he had this case against the uh, fearless fund in Atlanta, for giving women uh, uh, a startup money and money to help invest in their businesses. And I met with them when I got back to New York today, them along with attorney Ben Crump and attorney Alfonso Davey. On every front, they're trying to erode our right to vote. They're taking women's right to choose. And I think she takes a global view of this as vice president saying, this is a real battle against everything they marched for 60 years ago. We've made advancement. We've had a black president. We've had a uh, now black vice president. But we'll lose it all if we don't fight for what was handed to us. It's our time. As she said, it's not going to happen on my watch. And I, uh, the passion and sincerity of the interview and a clear focus on where we are now uh, comes through in this. And I think it is something that we really need to understand that Case by case, from affirmative action, the women's right to choose, to eroding of the uh, vote, particularly in black communities, all of this is an assault on democracy. And we need to all stand together, black, white, Latino, Asian, everybody, and push back against where they're trying to bring us back to the 19, pro, the pre-1950 America with Andy Griffith, Aunt B, and Goma <laughs> Powell. We're not going back. And yeah. I was glad to hear the vice president say he's going to be and is part of that fight because she's a result of the fight 60 years ago. You know, you think about it, it, you know, this was a march. You you say this all the time, Red. This was a march 
on Washington. It wasn't a march for Kennedy. It was a march to get Kennedy's attention. And, you know, we, no one, I think, could have imagined, and here's some images of it, that, in, that 60 years later, the highest-ranking black woman in American history would be the vice president of the United States, and let alone being a woman. So a lot has changed. It's hard to argue that. But did she address the, the, the fight that we're still in that really is the reason we still need to have a march on Washington? She has not only talks about it in length in the interview, she talks about it moving around the country. Don't forget, she went to Memphis and spoke at Tyrese Nichols' funeral where I gave the eulogy when he was beaten by police. She went to Florida and dealt with this question of, of the trying to edit out parts of American history and, and to uh, or Tennessee when they're going to put people out of the state legislature for standing up with free speech. So I yeah. think it is important that people understand that not only did we win putting people in the right place, but that they're trying to keep the country in the right place for everybody, women, blacks, gays, everybody. And that's why I thought the interview was so important. And the time in which we're in is not just to sit back and watch interviews, but to mm -hmm. be active. That's why thousands will be with us in Washington, August 26th, with Martin Luther King III and Andre uh, Waters King and myself calling this march. 60 years later, we're a lot yep. further than we were, but we're yep. not where we need to be. Amen. I've been remiss in mentioning that she also did go to Indianapolis, the Delta Sigma Theta Convention. She's been getting out there, and I love it. We'd love to see the vice president out there. We cannot wait to watch this interview. Reverend Al Sharpton, thank you. Be sure to watch Rev's complete interview with Vice President Kamala Harris on Politics Nation Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern here on MSNBC. That's tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.